0: Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the same chapter we've been in for quite some time, Matthew chapter 5, as we continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. If you are a child ready to go to children's church and you haven't left yet, I think probably most have, you may do so now. Any uh, children that uh, your parents have approved you to, to go, please feel free to t- to leave as I'm I'm talking. Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> We finished the Beatitudes, We now come to verse 13, which I'll read in a moment. Let me just say, by way of leading up to that, there is such a logical, purposeful structure and design to this Sermon on the Mount. It's inspired, you would expect that, wouldn't you? It's the greatest sermon ever preached. Only a divine preacher could have delivered it. I'm just the errand boy this morning. I'm not a divine preacher. I just want to relay what Jesus said. Failure on our part to understand this sermon and to rightly apply its teachings to our lives or to relegate it to somebody else like the Jews or or another time frame like the kingdom age to come has just wreaked all kinds of havoc in the church. I hope you won't be among those that do that. So let me say it again. This sermon is for us. I'm not talking about the one I'm preaching today, although I, would, I hope you'll feel that way when you walk away. But the sermon we're studying is for us, for believers in the church. And it is for today. It's for January the 22nd, 2023. It's as divinely inspired and as authoritative and relevant today as it was when Jesus sat down on a hillside by the Sea of Galilee and spoke these words astonishing the multitudes because He spoke with such authority. So I hope you'll listen with both ears wide open and with a predisposition to obey. That's not being prejudicial, or if it is, that's a good prejudice we esteem the words of His mouth to be always right. Amen? He doesn't have to prove Himself to us. The Bible is already the Word of God. Matthew 5 and verse 13, Jesus continues, ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor or his flavor, wherewith shall it be salted? He answers His own question. It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. We'll get to that next week, God willing. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven." salt and light, a frequent expression on the lips of people, even some that are not saved. Let's make a connection between what we've been studying up until this point and what we're starting to study today. In the Beatitudes, these are the attitudes that ought to be in the life of the believer. The greatest sermon ever preached begins with the greatest blessings ever pronounced. And in the Beatitudes that we've been studying for the last three months or more, We have seen a composite picture of what a true Christian is. These are not just recommended virtues. These are essential virtues. Now we're going to focus on how the Christian life should be manifested. There's a connection. I think we're aware of the fact that God has placed us as individual believers and as the church in the world, but he's he 's made it abundantly clear that we are not to be of the world, as I said a few weeks ago, and probably what is my life message? if you knew you would ask when you get the boat in water that 's a very natural thing when you get water in the boat, you better be concerned, and there 's a lot of the world in the church, but it 's a very natural thing, and the thing Jesus Ordained it to be for the church to be in the world, but not of it. Jesus prayed in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, I pray not, Father, that thou shouldest take them out of the world. He's not praying that we'll be taken out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil, the evil one who's very much in the world. Please notice the connection with the last beatitude that we studied very recently. The one about persecution and the message today about being salt. Jesus is saying in effect, yes, the world is going to get worse and worse. As Paul said, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. The world is going to persecute you more and more. Men are going to be so messed up and insane that when they kill you they will think they're doing God a service. They're going to eject you from their synagogues and from their sanctuaries and from their cathedrals. They're going to throw you in prison. They will threaten you with trumped-up charges, just like they did to me. You will get blamed for what goes wrong in the world. Men will beat you. Men will try to silence you by solitary confinement and martyrdom. But here's the key thought. Jesus is saying that does not mean that your influence for me on earth is nil. Far from it. In fact, when you are brought before rulers and kings for my sake, when you are threatened and interrogated, don't even premeditate what you're going to say. Don't take notes with you. The Holy Ghost is going to take over. He's going to speak through you just as he did in the case of Stephen, the early martyr of the church. The Bible says that men were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And the history of martyrs down through the church, maybe you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs. If not, I encourage you to do so. Or subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs magazine. It's been well documented that little timid girls have become bold as lions for Jesus in the face of martyrdom. We have learned from Christ that we should expect persecution from the same world that hated Him. So what are we going to do about it? In the meantime, should we just retreat to our little Baptist conclaves and huddles and seclude ourselves and let the rest of the world go by until it burns itself up? Oh, no. That's exactly the wrong thing to do. Jesus says you need to be salt and light. As we compare this metaphor of salt today, we'll take salt this week and, God willing, light next week. I think they're worthy of being separated, though they're in the same vein. But I want us to see, as we talk about salt, the fact that we are salt, I want us to see three profound spiritual realities. The last one I'll barely be able to touch on. I wish I could preach a whole message, but I don't think the time is right for it. Three profound spiritual realities about being salt as a believer and as a church. First of all, the true place of the church in the world. That's the first profound reality. The true place of the church, believers collectively, in the world. That little phrase, ye are the salt of the earth, speaks volumes. Many people, even Christians, use that term. So, I've heard that term so flippantly, so lightly. Oh, we're supposed to be salt and light, you know, salt and light. And you know what many people mean in their minds? We're just to add value to society. We're just to be the do-gooders. We're to make the world a better place. I don't want to be just scratching my pet peeves here this morning, but folks, it's so much deeper than that. Let's not have this flippant view of salt and light that so many have. I hope that after this message, you'll have a far deeper conception of what Jesus meant. Salt has an invisible influence on anything that it's placed, in which it's placed. Light cannot go unnoticed. Jesus went on to say, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. I love to see the satellite pictures at night on the part of the globe that's blocked and doesn't have the sun. Teeny little points of light can be seen from hundreds of miles in space. Light cannot go unnoticed. Before we break down verse 13 even more, let's Notice that first word, ye, y'all. Ye are the salt of the earth. Sometimes we forget that Jesus is really talking here to the church collectively. Oh, to to be sure, we should take it personally and be able to say individually, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Yeah, we ought to be able to say that. But Jesus has left His church in the world for a reason. And it's not so that we can experience the best of both worlds. Oh, no. Jesus prayed, again, in His high priestly prayer, which you'll hear me refer to several times. In John 17, verse 11, And now, Father, I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, His eleven disciples, and by extension, us who have believed on Him through their word, these are in the world. And Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. He prayed for us collectively. Our great high priest, praying his high priestly prayer in John 17, the true Lord's prayer. Oh, I hope you study it. It's the Holy of Holies of the Bible. He went on to say in verse 15, as I've already quoted, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, Father, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil, the evil one who is in the world. Please notice two self-evident things here. I say self-evident, but sometimes we have to point them out. I want you to see the Christian's influence, first of all, or the church's influence, And then secondly, the world's corruption, the Christian's influence. We have here the metaphor, salt. You say, what's a metaphor, pastor? Well, don't you know that's something to put cows in? Somebody did get that, anyway. A metaphor is, uh, linguistically and grammatically, it's a direct comparison whereas a simile is an indirect comparison we need to understand how valuable salt was back in bible times you know salt's pretty cheap not doesn't not all that valuable today I mean we have to have it we don't think about it but did you know that the word salary comes from an ancient word meaning salt money salary salt money. It it referred to a soldier's allowance for the purchase of salt. When we talk about a valued worker today, we still say he's worth his salt. Two times in the Bible, we read the expression, once in Exodus, once in Second Chronicles, I believe it is, 13, we read the expression, a covenant of salt. It is still the practice in some Arab cultures today that if two men want to enter into a sworn covenant, they will sit down at a table and both of them eat salt. And that legal agreement becomes binding. Oh, how valuable salt was. How valuable and influential God sees us, you and me, if we're saved. Let's talk about this, break it down even further. If you think of salt and the believer's influence, first of all, the believer's influence is inevitable. We're afraid to say this, but God isn't. Jesus did not say, you ought to be the salt of the earth. I'm recommending that you be the salt of the earth. I suggest that you be the salt of the earth. You ought to be the salt. No, he says, you are. Ye are the salt of the earth. Actually, the Greek is even more emphatic. Ye and ye alone are the salt of the earth. That's what it means. Please don't tone down the force of Christ's statement. If you are at all a child of God, if your name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life, if you are a son or daughter of God, a true Christian, you will be exerting an influence for righteousness don't give me this carnal Christian stuff. That's made up by man. You don't find that in the Bible. You say, well, what about 1 Corinthians 3, pastor? Yeah, talking about those Corinthians, they were being fleshly in some ways, but they had been changed dramatically from what they used to be. Please go back and rethink this whole carnal Christian stuff. It's become a cop-out. I've heard other people cop out and say, well, when it comes to matters of religion, pastor, I'm just neutral. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm not against religion. There's a lot of beauty. There's a lot of good in it. But I don't wear my religion on my shirt sleeve. Oh, I cringe every time I hear that. That that may sound pious and non-extreme, but it's a very foolish and dangerous thing to say. Because our Lord himself said, he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Your influence is not neutral when it comes to Christ and his gospel. Right now, as you sit where you are, and as you live where you live, and as you work where you work, you are either commending Christ to the consciences of people, or you are repelling them from him. no middle ground. Ye are the salt of the earth. It's inevitable. Secondly, your influence is preserving. In this day of modern refrigeration, we forget how much our ancestors, some of them not that far back, not many generations back, depended on salt to preserve meat. Some of you still love, and I do, salt beef. We used to have it a lot in the Cayman Islands. You may or may not uh, have had a pot of beans or dumplings that's been salted. Salting is very closely related to brining, which is the fermentation of some foods using salt. People salt meats like codfish and, and bacon. They salt vegetables like pickles, runner beans, cabbage. These things were commonly salted and some places still are today. Salt preserves. Do you realize that if you truly know Christ, there's a pungent savor and flavor about you that has the tendency to preserve others? It keeps them from going as far into sin as deep as they would otherwise go. Maybe you've experienced it on the job. You join the water cooler crowd at break times and they suddenly get quiet. They quit telling their dirty jokes and their sexual escapades over the weekend. You have a restraining effect, at least for a time, on their sinful conversation. You are retarding their decay. And collectively the church does this through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. He is the one who hinders, or the old English... King James word is let restrains. Otherwise things would be far worse than they are. You have an influence of salt in the earth. It's inevitable. It preserves. Thirdly, it's rebuking. Probably you've heard the expression that's like pouring salt on a wound. If you put salt on a wound, it's going to hurt. It's going to sting. It's going to burn before it heals. But it does have medicinal healing properties. I don't think I need to even state the spiritual parallel. It's obvious, isn't it? Our righteousness will rebuke and condemn the world around us. If we have sincerely held convictions that are based upon God's Word, you can put it down. We're going to be accused of being legalistic and judgmental. That is the ultimate evil to be a judgment. We've come to, the fact, come to the place where almost nothing else is sin except to have a judgmental attitude. Have you noticed that? Does that bother you? Doesn't it work both ways? What am I missing? As I preached in a recent sermon to qualify for the blessing that Jesus pronounced upon those that are persecuted, we must make sure that our persecution is for what? For righteousness sake." There's no excuse for being rude, crude, coarse, fanatical, unethical. When we get flack for that, that's not persecution. Cain hated his brother because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Abel was persecuted for righteousness' sake. Daniel suffered being thrown into the lion's den because he was righteous for putting his God first and obeying him in everything. I said it before in a previous message, but I think it bears repetition. The world generally admires do-gooders. They can't help but do that. They admire people Though they may be saved, outspoken Christians, if they're benevolent people and philanthropic donors, if they're so-called angels of mercy, make no mistake about it, the world does not hate people for being good, but they hate them, and they hate you, and they hate me for being righteous. Now, to be sure, God can use our do-gooding, as the ministry of ORH has proved. God can use our do-gooding to pave the way for the gospel. Let's expect that. Let's trust God for it. Even as Jesus healed and fed and cast out demons and raised people from the dead so that people would, raise, would realize who He was and believe on Him and be forgiven and cleansed. But when we take a stand for righteousness' sake, we're not going to be appreciated. We have a rebuking effect we are the salt. Fourthly, we have a purifying effect. Salt has antiseptic qualities. As I mentioned already, it cleanses and it purifies. It's interesting that all of the burnt offerings in the Old Testament, all the Levitical burnt offerings, had to be offered with salt. It rendered the sacrifice clean unto God. In a similar manner, to salt heals. If you want an open wound to heal, you better keep it clean, right? The doctor will tell you that. It's interesting that in the days of Elisha the prophet, as he was felt responsible for the sons of the prophet, for all those preacher boys at several different places, in one place, the drinking water supply for these sons of the prophet, they, it got contaminated. It was contaminated from a, the source, which was a spring. So what did the man of God do? They came to him and complained. They expected him to do something. Did he pour in Clorox? Oh, no. Did he filter it through a charcoal? Uh Uh-uh. He poured salt at the source. Salt cleansed, healed. Did you know in Bible times when babies were born and needed to be purified from the afterbirth, they were rubbed with salt? In all likelihood, the baby Jesus was rubbed with salt by Mary in the manger. Beloved, you and I as individual Christians, but especially as the church collectively, we're not just a retardant influence to the decay around us. We are a cleansing influence. Touch not the unclean thing. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. That means be holy. You say, Pastor, how do you do that? Well, I appreciate your interest in that question. How do we do this cleansing in the corrupt world around us? The Word of God is very clear about it. The latter part of Proverbs 16, verse 6. Please jot that down. latter part of six, Proverbs 16, verse 6. By the fear of the Lord, men what? Depart from evil. By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Could I just say it today, whether I get any kudos or not? We have all but lost a sense of the fear of God in the evangelical church in the United States of America. We don't want a sense of awe and dread. We don't want to be depressed and weighed down and guilt ridden when we come to church. We've even cheapened the meaning of the word awesome. We use it so flippantly. I'm guilty too. It doesn't even mean what it used to mean. God wants us to be the contagion, in a good sense, by which the fear of God spreads. And when God's people are holy and have a true fear of God, the fear of God will fall on others around us. It's always been that way. In the days of a godly king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, who enacted many great reforms, noble reforms for his God, the Bible says this. Are you listening? the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the land that surrounded Judah so that they made no war against Judah or Jehoshaphat. We come to the New Testament, and this isn't quite as clear as it would be if you, you understand Greek, but there were a class of, of people who were known as the God-fearers. They were well known to the New Testament believers, especially the Jews. They were not Jews themselves. They were Gentiles who were not yet saved. They were like Cornelius, the Roman centurion that we read about in Acts chapter 10. Before he ever gave his heart to Christ, before Peter ever went to his doorstep, the Bible says this in Acts chapter 10 verse 2, He was a devout man. He was one that feared God with all of his house, which gave alms to, all, to the Jews if he'd come to the average independent Baptist church, we'd have voted him in in a heartbeat. But he wasn't saved. Peter had to go to his house in Caesarea after the Lord worked him over with a dream on the housetop. And Peter had to give Cornelius and all of his household words whereby he and they would be saved. Isn't that something? What do you think those words were? I think that was the gospel. Here's the point, beloved. We need to beg God to do on our hearts what we want Him to do in the hearts of others. Not only love Him, but fear Him. We are the salt of the earth. If we get serious about being a holy people, the fear of our God will fall on those around us and not until. We need to see the Christian's influence in the world. Secondly, we need to see the world's corruption. If we as the church of the living God are to see ourselves in the true place that we are in the world, we'll see that we are our salt, but the world around us is corrupt. Hey, there's nothing redeeming about this world. The Bible says the whole world lies in wickedness. I know we talk about culture and so forth, but let's be careful. This whole world without Christ is rotten to the core. It's under the curse of God. Would you turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17? Wonderful, wonderful verses that would need to be championed and focused on again. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. While you're turning there, let me just say, I'm convicted of the fact that most Christians are so concerned about being relevant that they've forgotten completely about being different. This is what the, God's Word says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's pretty cut and dry there's no middle ground there. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away. Literally, you may have a translation that says this, is passing away. And the lust thereof, the capacity to enjoy it. But he that doeth the will of God, and only he that doeth the will of God, abideth forever. Have you ever stopped to reflect on the fact that this doomed world has been repeatedly spared the fierceness of God's wrath only, are you listening, on the account of true believers? Over and over again, this has been the case. I'll give you several notable examples. Go back to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 20. You don't need to turn there. I'll briefly summarize. Abraham is the father of the faithful. <clears throat> he wasn't perfect. This is one instance where he sure didn't act in a very perfect way. He lied about his wife out of fear with the heathen Philistines and their king Abimelech. Abimelech was going to add Sarah to his harem. God appeared to him in the night and said, you better not touch her or you're a dead man. And God struck all the Philistine women barren and the whole colony would have died unless Abraham prayed for them as weak and backslidden as he was. He still was the only one could save and spare those people. Isn't that something? He was the only one who could do it. For many years, God spared Egypt for the sake of His children there, the children of Israel. Finally, after 400 years, God said, okay, that's enough. He sent the plagues topped off by that tenth plague, the death of the firstborn and then in the pursuit of the Israelites leaving Egypt, all of Pharaoh's hosts were drowned in the Red Sea. But right before that happened, it would have been, it would, this would have been hilarious had it not been so tragic. According to Exodus chapter 12, verse 32, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron one last time to tell them to leave Egypt, take everything, every, all your flocks and herds. That's what they've been asking to do all along. And then he would renege, he'd change his mind and go and serve your God." And then he said this, and I can't help but chuckle, and bless me also. (laughs) Bless me also. What an admission from this hardened, wicked, proud man. Only the God of Israel could bless him for the sake of Israel. Wow. Does God have a sense of humor? I want to remind you, there comes a limit to God's patience. We see from the pages of the Old Testament that there are times when the world gets so rotten that God says to His own people who are the redeeming value in the world, that's enough, stand back, don't stop me, the cup of my wrath is full. As we see with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the civilization at the time of the flood and with the inhabitants of Canaan when the iniquity of the Amorites was so full. God just wipes them all out. God has been so long suffering to this world for the sake of His children that He's sown in it. But one day the church of Jesus Christ is going to be taken out of here. The restraining influence of the Holy Spirit will be removed. And all hell is going to break loose. And the thought of your loved ones and mine going through that ought to shake us to the core. You don't want to be on the sinking Titanic when that happens. Dear brothers and sisters, we are the salt of the earth. We are the reason that God has spared this planet so far. We are salt. The world is rotten. Don't mince words about it. Don't be intimidated about it. Don't be ashamed. Don't apologize. Just do your best to get everybody you can into the ark of safety, even if you're only successful with your own family. It's worth it. The world is corrupt. We're the only redeeming influence. Secondly, I want you to see the the profound reality. The source of the believer's graces is Jesus. As we go back to Matthew chapter 5, after Jesus says there in the opening words here, the salt of the earth, he goes on to say, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? You English buffs, you grammar people, you know that's passive. Somebody else is the source of the salt, not us. We're just doing the receiving. We're not doing the acting. So I want you to realize that Jesus is the source of the believer's influence, his graces. You've heard me say it many times before. I hope you don't think that I'm just trying to make you like me for coming across Humble. The only thing original about me is my sin. If there's anything good about me, it's what Jesus has wrought in my heart and life. I must say with Paul, and you must too, in Romans 7, verse 18, for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Not one good thing. I was reading the other day in Hosea chapter 14 verse 8, God says to his old covenant people, restored and revived in the last days, Israel. In Hosea 14 verse 8, I love this, from me is thy fruit found. From me is thy fruit found. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus said to his own in John 15 verse 5, he that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. 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 The graces that we manifest in our lives as believers, they don't originate with us. We often hear somebody say, well, that person, you know, they may act this way or that, but they're really good at heart. Who are we kidding? Nobody's good at heart. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. The graces that we have are the fruit of the Spirit, which is full-orbed and multifaceted as we read that catalog in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, which means kindness, faith, which means faithfulness, meekness, temperance, self-control. Those are all the things that make the world a much better place than it would otherwise be, but that's because of the graces of God in the heart and life of a Christian. I've told you this before, but every morning, when I get up, and I usually get up a little while before my wife, and it's still dark, and often it's cold, and I'll stumble into the bathroom, and I'll splash my face with water, or take a washcloth and try to get a, become awake, get my eyes open. Then the first thing I see is that plaque right there between the two mirrors. It says. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. (laughs) I love to think about that. And I'm led to appropriate the graces of the Son of God for that day. As I think about what I'm going to face, and sometimes I say, Jesus, I sure need your forgiveness because I don't have it. I need your long-suffering. I need your forbearance. I need your sweetness. I need your wisdom because I'm bankrupt of it right now. Give me Jesus. Otherwise my saltiness in this tasteless world is just flat. The cause of the believer's influence, his saltiness is Christ. By the same token, it's the reason for the believer's persecution. It stands to reason that if what we manifest to the world is what Christ has worked in and through us, and it is, then we need to expect to get the same reception that Jesus got. Amen. We've read from John 15 already. Would you notice it once again? If you turn there quickly, John 15, verse 18. John 15, verse 18, Jesus told His disciples these words, Verse 18, John 15, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. And he went on to say in verse 25, quoting from probably two or three verses uh, collectively in the Old Testament, as it is written, they hated me without a cause. The world's hatred for Jesus and the world's hatred for you and for me will be totally irrational. There's no reason for it. It doesn't make sense. Are we good with that? As we faithfully give the gospel, I challenge us, I remind us all, let's neither be pessimistic nor overly euphoric just as it was with Jesus' gospel preaching, just especially with the parable of the, of the sower and the soils that we've talked about in more, a recent series, there's going to be a mixed re- reaction to the gospel. Some with joy will receive it who really have true hearts. Some will seem to receive it with joy and then prove that there's no depth there. Some will reject it right on the surface. The same sun that melts the wax, you know the rest of it, hardens the clay. As Paul said in, to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians chapter 2, referring to us and not just our message, he said, we are unto God the savor of life unto life and of death unto death. Maybe you could put it this way. Whenever you go out there to give the gospel and witness, you better be ready to duck or Pucker. Because you're going to get a mixed response. Some will love you and some will hate you. But I hope you won't forget, especially when you get the door slammed in your face. We almost had that happen yesterday. I have had it happen a number of times. I hope you'll remember then that the main thing is this. We are still a sweet fragrance unto God. Because that's the response Jesus got. And Jesus always satisfied please God his father well i got to move won't spend long on this third third point but i hope it'll open up a study for you the third profound reality about the fact that we as believers especially collectively as a church are the salt of the earth is this the test the test of a believer's genuineness is perseverance Jesus asks a rhetorical question here in this text verse. But if the salt have lost its savor its flavor, wherewith shall it be salted? The obvious answer is nothing. It goes on to say, it is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. I don't know what this verse reminds you of, but to me it reminds me of John chapter 15 and verse 6. We were in John 15 a moment ago, maybe you're still there, but if you look at verse when Jesus talks about being Of the vine, and we are the branches. He says in verse 6, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. And boy, you hear all kinds of weird rationalizations about what that fire is. Because we're afraid that it might teach that we lose our salvation. Oh, it's really quiet. just like branches that don't bear fruit that Jesus talked about a man who does not abide in Christ is cast forth as a branch he is withered men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned he proves that he is not a true branch a man can have taken away from that which he seemeth from him that which he seemeth to have compare that with luke 8 verse 18 But one day he will hear at the last day those awful words as recorded in Matthew chapter 7 around verse 22 depart from me I never knew you Isn't that interesting he didn't say I knew you once but you fell away he said I never knew you either the saints persevere to the end or else the grace of God has done nothing for them effectually. We're afraid to say that. I'm not going to be afraid anymore. If we do not exert a saintly influence, there's no hope. Our faith is a deception. And this is suggestive of Hebrews 6, verse 6. And boy, I'm about to rush in where angels fear to tread. So all I'm going to do is just read this verse, make a couple of comments, and we'll have to save it for another time. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6, after, this is one of those warning passages, after the writer to the Hebrews talks about a bunch of hypotheticals here, it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, have tasted the good word of God, the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. I will deal with that more justly at another time. But let me just save for now, that means at the very least, if it were possible to lose your salt, it proves that you were never worth your salt in the first place. And you can never be restored to repentance. Whatever that means, it means that. And let's do a takeaway and then I'm done. We're reading and I hear about this all the time. Just almost every week we hear about somebody else who's deconverting, deconstructing from the Christian faith. And I'm amazed at how slap happy they are about it. They celebrate it. They're not hopeless about it. And oh, the press picks up on it. But if we understand what Jesus is saying here, and we understand what the writer to the Hebrews is saying, woe be to all the Josh Harrises, and the Marty Sampson's of Hillsong that have deconstructed, deconverted, and the so-called progressive preachers like Colby Martin, that have become so cavalier about departing from the faith once and for all, delivered to the saints. Why are they that way? Listen to me carefully. I'll tell you why they're that way. They are past feeling. They are devoid of the Holy Spirit. And they are unrenewable. And don't be shaken by them. Whether we realize it or not, if we are saved, We are the salt of the earth. It's not just that we should be, we ought to be. We are. We are exerting an influence for Christ and for righteousness in the world. And by the way, that's why Jesus left us here since He saved us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a striking pronouncement from the lips of our Savior. What a staggering claim And a conception of us. Ye are the salt of the earth." May we continually look to Jesus for the graces of His Holy Spirit, to do as we're commanded to do, to have salt in ourselves, to always have speech that is with grace seasoned with salt, so that we can season this rotten, insipid, corrupt and tasteless world. Oh, help us to live out what we are. In Jesus' name, amen.